What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, David. Welcome to The Exchange. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans, and here is what's ahead. Another crypto collapse. Voyager Digital filing for bankruptcy. Is this ripple effect going to take out even more players in the crypto industry? And oil extending yesterday's big drop. Price is now at $96 a barrel. We're going to look at whether this steep decline might mean lower prices are here to stay. Plus, a way to play gas prices that you might not have thought of. And we're an hour away from the release of the minutes of the latest Fed meeting. What they were saying as they agreed to hike rates by three quarters of a point. And what clues does that give us about what they might do next? But we begin, of course, with the markets right now. Dom Chu has got the numbers. So, John, that market that you're referring to right now might just be in a holding pattern, given what we are anticipating to see from those Federal Reserve minutes later on at 2 p.m. Eastern time. If you take a look at the Dow Industrials, the S&P, and the Nasdaq, it's been a fairly tight trading range so far today. We're right across the board right now, but to give you an idea of the context, we're down 90 points right now. We were up 122 points at the highs of the session and down 173 at the low. So again, fractional losses across the board. It is the Nasdaq that's outperforming. 11,310 the last trade there, just about one-tenth of 1% declines and two-tenths of 1% with regard to the S&P 500, which sits at just about 38.25, the last trade there. One place that some traders are keeping a close eye on, of course, is energy. Big momentum trade over the last year that's fallen off a cliff as of late. The reason why some are paying more attention to it today with a 3% decline in the energy sector spider ticker XLE is because $67.75 was a level that some traders were watching very closely. Why? Because that was the 200-day average price on a rolling basis for this one, the 200-day moving average, so to speak, a longer-term trend line, it broke below that level today. So what does that mean? Maybe does that signal more weakness ahead? That's one debate that traders are having right now. So keep an eye on those oil and gas stocks in the S&P 500. And then the stock of the day, well, let's call three of them. I'm just going to show you Norwegian Cruise Lines because it's down 10% right now. Remember, Norwegian Cruise Lines, Carnival, and Royal Caribbean were all big gainers in yesterday's session giving a lot of that back today. Norwegian's got some specific company-specific data and news to report today. They, as a company, have eliminated their COVID testing requirement for guests aboard their vessels. They will still be subject to local regulations wherever they may be. But still, as a company, they've gotten rid of that effective August 1st. But keep an eye on those cruise line operators, the travel and leisure stocks, Norwegian, Carnival, and Royal Caribbean. John, three of the worst performers in the S&P 500 so far today. But again, contextually, real big outperformers yesterday. I'll send things back over to you. Well, we count on you for the context, Dom. Thanks. And a choppy market as investors await the Fed minutes at the top of the 2 p.m. hour. My next guest calls this the weirdest economy she's ever seen. And she's sticking with tech, including semiconductors, despite the SMH tracking for the worst year since 2008. Joining me now is Kim Forrest, Bokeh Capital Partners Chief Investment Officer. And Kim, Bokeh is that thing in photography where the background is out of focus while the subject right. is in focus. This whole economy is kind of out of focus, isn't it? How do you decide what to bet on? It is. 
Well, what we are is a growth at a reasonable price firm. So we are always looking for the drivers for growth, not necessarily seeing growth. So you wouldn't get caught up in a momentum sort of situation, maybe. Anything can happen in the markets. But that is exactly right. We see the economy and it is weird. Why is it weird? We still have more than full employment, or so it seems. We're going to find out on Friday. And I'm fascinated by the JOLTS report as well. So I think all investors need to pay attention to that to understand what the markets are looking at. Okay. So what would constitute new good information out of these minutes? I mean, I I guess you might want to know how much flexibility the Fed has in the next, um, you know, rate hike, which we expect might be 75 basis points. Right. I think the street's now expecting 75 basis points just because of the last round of the Fed meeting and then the talk after the Fed. They were, you know, pointing to inflation being their biggest problem that they have to solve. But they also have to keep employment in mind because that's their other mandate, full employment and stable prices, right? Well, prices are out of whack, but I'm not sure the economy could stand a great big jolt like we had in uh, 82 to try to get things back into focus. We'll use that metaphor and to get the economy back on track. So what I'm looking for, because Powell was a market participant, unlike so many of the other Fed chairmen and chairwomen that were PhD economists, he was a market participant. So he really understands what markets do and what they respond to. So if there is some talk about shorter term view on how to assess what to do next, I think that would give the uh, markets a whole lot of comfort that they may not continue, you know, ramping up that rate at aggressive rates anymore. So we'll see. Here's what I'm wondering. Maybe you can help me with this. Might be an elementary question about Mm. the the labor market. The the labor force participation rate has been kind of low. And we talk about full employment. The unemployment rate is low, but that's a measure of who's looking for work. Aren't there people who aren't looking for work, but as inflation rises, the economy darkens, they might start looking for work. And so all of a sudden, both the numerator and the denominator that we look at for the the health of the labor market might shift? Yes. And that's something that I'm desperately looking for. Look, I live in Pittsburgh. We are not like one of the, the top 25 cities anymore. And if we're having labor shortages, like, you know, uh, businesses are having to close because they can't find people to work the shifts. It's a problem. And I am looking for those workers that disappeared during COVID to come back. Is it now? I don't know. I mean, that is the mystery. Where did the workers go? What are they doing for money? And when are they coming back? I don't think anybody has a great answer for those. So back to technology, which you are betting on, and and you were saying in the beginning that you're looking at not necessarily growth stocks, but the drivers of growth overall uh, to bet on. Fundamentally, then, over the longer term, despite the lack of clarity that we have in the economy right now, what's driving your investment decisions? Is it the expectation that computing goes everywhere, that 5G connectivity becomes a more important part of the overall economy? Absolutely. But what has always driven my view for as long as I've uh, as long as I've been in this industry, which is 99, is that technology provides productivity. That's the answer. 
So with a reduced uh, shrinking workforce, for whatever reason, businesses have to implement technology. And I see the 5G being able to actually bring Internet of Things, where you have sensors out there in the world gathering all sorts of data that will allow companies to be more productive. That is going to drive semiconductor use and an explosion of data, right? Because right? you collect the data, you got to put it somewhere. All right. Kim Forrest from Bokeh, thank you. Thank you. Meanwhile, sometimes technology drives more than productivity. Crypto lenders under pressure as Bitcoin hovers around 20,000. After hitting an all-time high in November, the price slowly fell as the Fed signaled the return of rate hikes. Then Terra's stablecoin collapsed in May. Crypto companies like Celsius paused withdrawals with all the volatility. And last week, crypto hedge fund Three Hours Capital went under. Now... The crypto brokerage uh, Voyager Digital is filing for bankruptcy, becoming the latest casualty in the crypto collapse. CNBC.com tech reporter Mackenzie Sigalos here with the latest. Mackenzie. So, John, the Voyager Digital bankruptcy is the perfect example of the dreaded contagion effect. And it looks like all roads trace back to the Terra U.S. dollar peg stablecoin project that imploded in May. We now know that Three Arrows Capital, a once very prominent crypto hedge fund, had exposure to this project and reportedly suffered losses of more than $200 million. Now, from there, Three Arrows, which is known for its highly leveraged trading strategy, started defaulting on loans left and right. It borrowed money from BlockFi and was unable to meet that margin call. BlockFi subsequently had its own liquidity issues after that. 3AC, as you also uh, refer to Three Arrows Capital, defaulted on a $670 million loan to Voyager Digital, then filed for bankruptcy. And it's really been a swift and significant domino effect since then, culminating in this Voyager Digital bankruptcy. Now, a big part of what's behind this serious liquidity bottleneck right now is the fact that a lot of these platforms were offering almost unbelievable returns of up to 20% APY. But as cryptocurrency prices dropped, solvency was tested, and a lot of people look to withdraw liquidity from these crypto lenders. So now a lot of analysts are starting to say, hey, you know that time of easy yield and decentralized finance? It's over. Yeah, um, it's, it's really similar to the Ponzi structure where everything seems fine until people want their money out. And a lot of this decentralized finance seems awfully centralized. These firms borrowing money from each other. Is there any clear sense yet of how many shoes are left to drop, not just if crypto drops from here, but even if Bitcoin just stays right where it is. Right. So we've had this ultimate stress test of the system that has been epically failing so far. And part of the problem is that these DeFi protocols were subsidizing these double-digit APY offerings. And so as they had clients come in, they thought, oh, we'll take a hit, we'll drum up some business. In some cases, they were reinvesting client funds into other protocols that were offering these sky-high returns. And so the knock-on effect, I mean, we definitely haven't seen the end of it yet. It's just starting, it seems like. So what, what do you think happens? And maybe there's no concrete answer to this. So much of crypto is based on belief. You know, the, yes. the Bitcoin bull <laughs> in Miami, these exciting conferences about you know, it being all the future. 
if enough people get burned and people start to think it's not the future, how much is really there? Right. And I think that that's what a lot of analysts are saying right now. We're going to see this washout, definitely among crypto lenders. You will have a few come out. Aave and Compound have still been doing well, bucking this trend as other lenders are folding under the pressure. Uh, but we'll have to we'll have to see. And as you said, it really is an optics game. <laughs> you have to believe in it for it to work. Well, 18 percent APY. That's like the liar's loan of 2022. Like you knew that that couldn't be right. But here we are. Yeah. I mean, people didn't care when they were getting those returns. Yeah. Mackenzie, thank you. Thanks. Uh, my next guest is the CEO of a bank that provides financial services for digital assets. And with the Voyager, just the latest casualty, how widespread could this contagion be? Joining me for more is Caitlin Long, Custodia Bank CEO. Caitlin, good to see you again. Now, <laughs> you've been warning about this potential outcome for quite a while, but how much more is there potentially in the crypto system? And could it take down even well-meaning players like yourself? Well, uh, Custodia Bank is designed for solvency. There's no leverage on our balance sheet. It's a radically different business model. And, and to be clear, we're not operating yet. We're on the verge of, but we're not yet operating. Uh, but we, our design is, is to be non-leveraged. It's the polar opposite of all the mess that I've been warning about for the last few years that is uh, creating the train wreck in this industry. But it's not over yet. The, the Bitcoin is going nowhere. Bitcoin continues to, to print blocks. Uh, there are new, new blocks being appended every 10 minutes on average. And, uh, and Bitcoin itself is going to be just fine. Um, what's it for, though, going forward? Like right now, we talk about a store of value. E even in this inflationary environment, you'd be better off having held dollars for the past several months than, you know, Netflix stock or Bitcoin or, or, or. Right. So uh, what does what does Bitcoin, what do these other cryptocurrencies have to prove out as their uh, their, their usability case going forward, if not appreciation? Well, all the leverage games have definitely made Bitcoin and other cryptos trade like high beta tech stocks, to your point, in this last cycle. But that's not the reality. The reality is that Bitcoin itself is a store of value. It is an alternative it is a monetary instrument that is not issued by a counterparty. And the mistakes that so many in the crypto industry did in the last few years, of which I was quite critical, are to turn, counter, turn, turn this, this counterparty-less monetary token into something that needed counterparties. And it doesn't. And a good riddance to all of these companies that were, were the proverbial Icaruses flying too close to the sun. They got burned. Let's, let's flush this leverage and go back to the ethos of what Satoshi Nakamoto designed for the industry, which is leverageless transactions. And, and that's what Custodia Bank is built for. But do we, in, in an ironic sort of way, need regulation and some level of centralization in order to ensure that that decentralized vision can play out? That's a great question. And I have been pro-regulation with regard to enabling regulation that prevents the fraudsters and crazy leveraged players that burned this, this industry so badly in the last several months from, from regaining their position. One of the challenges is that the regulators, by, by slow walking the, the non-leveraged players, of which Custodia is one, they didn't give the market an alternative and into that void of, of the slow walking that happened from the regulators filled all these fraudsters 
and frankly, some criminals. And, and that's it, the, the regulators work both with action and inaction. And in this case, I think their inaction caused much greater problems. That was especially true with the SEC, which greenlighted the GBTC as the one and only way that folks could gain exposure to Bitcoin in their brokerage accounts for almost six years. And that created a, a, an incredible market distortion because it was a closed-end fund that ended up trading at a big premium to Bitcoin. That hurt retail investors and all these leveraged Wall Street funds could come in right. and arbitrage that and pick off the retail investors. But How was that good for the industry? We often go from underreaction or too much hands to, to overreaction when it comes to regulation, when it comes to legislation. So what's, what's the scenario where we thread the needle here and get this right so that the, the story isn't reacting to, you know, 18% APY promises that turn crypto into a Ponzi scheme and is instead uh, giving consumers more power and opportunity? That's a great question. And it goes back to really what the state of Wyoming special purpose depository institutions were designed for. This is something I've been working on for more than four years to create a non-leveraged depository institution that is subject to bank capital standards and bank regulations. All of the players in this in the U.S. crypto industry are not subject to those right now. And that and that's the challenge. I think they all ultimately will be required to be regulated as banks. And that's going to be good for consumers and good for the users ultimately. Yeah. A lot of people want to buy magic beans. Let's see if they want to buy beans, <laughs> even if they're good for us. Caitlin Long, thank you. Thank you. Coming up, crude prices crashing below 100 bucks for the first time in nearly two months and falling even further today. We're going to look at big declines in the fallout for energy stocks, plus 44 minutes until the release of the Fed minutes. What will investors be watching for? What clues might we get about the Fed's hiking plans? The exchange is back after this. This is The Exchange on CNBC. We could try to explain what it's like to get your work done on a John Deere mower, compact tractor, or Gator XUV. But to really understand the feeling, you just have to get in the seat. Learn more at johndeere.com slash get in the seat or visit a dealer near you. Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently and still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. Welcome back to The Exchange. Uh, crude falling below 100 bucks a barrel for the first time since May yesterday. And Pippa Stevens, what's the fallout for energy stocks? Hey, John. Well, energy stocks are getting hit across the board as recession calls grow louder. The S&P energy sector is down 26 percent since hitting a multi-year high on June 8th. As one person told me, it was the last domino to fall after being the lone bright spot in the market for months. Oil has weakened, and investors are selling energy stocks to cover losses elsewhere. APA, Marathon Oil, Devon, and Halliburton all dropping nearly 40% from their latest highs. 
Meantime, coal making a comeback amid the global energy crunch. Prices are at record levels, but stocks including Peabody and Arch Resources have faltered, with coal's long-term viability still in question. And the picture isn't much better for clean energy. Wind names Vestas and TPI Composites down sharply in the last month. Canadian solar, sun power and array technologies down as well. This is partly due to correlation with high growth stocks, which investors have fled. And then there's also the impact of higher rates and policy uncertainty. Now, for those who are bullish on clean energy, they say in time, this trend will turn around. Crude has pulled back but remains elevated. And the longer oil, gas and coal are high, the more attractive renewables look, John. But for right now, it's a lateral across the board. All right, Pippa, thanks. Now, despite those recent declines, sky-high gas prices have led to a huge surge in energy stocks this year. And while everybody's talking uh, about tracking Exxons of the world, Bank of America also has an eye on select payment stocks as Google searches for gas cards recently reached their highest level since data tracking began back in 2004. Despite these surges in both gas prices and internet searches, it's been a rough year for the fuel card providers. Shares of WEX down about 25% from the 52-week high. Fleet Core off 26%. My next guest is staying bullish on the long-term growth prospects for both companies, though. Let's bring in Bank of America payments analyst Mihir Bhatia. Uh, Mihir, this is an interesting space. These gas card companies really about fleets, not individuals. But I'm not sure how to think about this strategically because it's really a technology problem, right? Companies want the right vehicle driven on the most efficient route buying the cheapest gas. The card solves kind of a piece of that maybe, but not the whole problem. Hi, John. Thanks for having me here. No, you're absolutely right. You know, the cards, what the cards help with is get, getting your fuel prices uh, down, you know, make it as efficient as possible for you to drive uh, to, to, to fill your vehicles. Now, they also have some interesting technologies that they do provide in addition to just, you know, giving you some kind of rebate on your gas prices. They also usually there'll be, you know, they'll have some apps, they'll have some uh, interesting uh, reporting technologies to help you control the costs of fuels. But they really do tend to focus on that last piece that you mentioned where you're trying to reduce the cost of fuel. And I, I wonder then, how much are they moving in to solve the fuller problem as technology providers and not just payments providers? It's similar in a way to what we've seen with the Airbnbs and the Expedias of the world getting further into operations. But it has its challenges when it comes to fleet. Um, so in a sense, if you're, if you're betting on these payments providers, are you betting on just the payments piece or are they making investments in solving the larger problem? No, they certainly are making, you know, wider investments. One of the interesting things with both companies is they've really been expanding more into just, you know, corporate B2B payments. One of the big areas that they've been leveraging and getting growth in, it has been the B2B payments where they'll work with their small business customers, larger customers to take over their AP files and, you know, deliver those payments more efficiently. So, you know, it's an interesting uh, growth opportunity, but really uh, the way I think we think of them is their combination of different businesses there. Uh, you know, there are some synergies between the business and as you can certainly cross-sell a lot of the AP and corporate payment solutions they provide to the gas card customers. But, uh, you know, that's still early days on that score. Uh, what, what are the things that work against the thesis in these payment companies? I mean, I imagine as the price of gas comes down, you know, 
hopefully, uh, that in a way could affect demand for them. But if they can't find the workers to drive the routes to give the cards, I imagine, you know, a tight labor market might also have an effect, no? Yes, no, you're absolutely right. And, you know, both companies have talked about really the biggest headwind they've had in the last a year or so has been the lack of truck drivers, right? What they're hearing from their customers is that they just, it's, it's difficult to find labor for those things, for those uh, truck drivers. Now, uh, to your point about, you know, other headwinds, certainly, uh, you know, a recession or a headwind where you just have less goods moving from uh, one, moving around the country is going to be an effect because really the way they get paid at the end of the day, for the most part is as a, you know, it's an interchange model where you're getting paid a percentage of the gas card of the gas bill, effectively. So, uh, you know, on the positive side, you know, for them, uh, not so much for the businesses and customers, is gas prices are up, and that this has led to some kind of increased demand and increased uh, need for these cards. Right. What's so? Yeah. Can you can you hedge the bet on the on the fuel card providers against? the uh, payments players who are dealing in business travel? Because it seems like some of the, the factors that affect one positively are going to affect the other negatively, right? Uh, I'm not sure that that, that I'm not sure that that's right, right? Because, uh, you know, really the where they are focused on in terms of the gas cards is really small businesses for the most part and moving of goods and services, right? So think your local plumber, your local HVAC company, as those as those businesses drive around to service you and, you know, they, they need to fill gas in those vehicles. Business travel tends to be a little bit more, you know, going to conventions, going to sales, things like that. So I'm not sure that there's a direct, you know, mapping, if you will, in that uh, uh, big to, to hedge it in that yeah, way. Fair enough. I'll work on it. Mihir Bhatia, thanks for illuminating the space for us. Great. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Still ahead, a contrarian housing call. One analyst turning bullish on a beleaguered consumer finance company. He's going to join us to make his case with stock down 50% in a year. Plus, Amazon Prime members getting a new perk. We'll tell you what it is and what it means for the future of food delivery. There's a hint. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map of Chevron and Caterpillar, the biggest laggards. The exchange is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com/activecash. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now seeming to consider the possibility of a late-day rally. The Dow's high was up 122 points. The low was down 173. Right now it's down 
just about 100. It was up a little bit more, but now seems to be trailing off. And you can see the same for the S&P and the NASDAQ, which is at about break even. Energy leading the declines, followed by consumer discretionary. The rate-sensitive sectors, utilities and real estate, are outperforming ahead of the release of the Fed minutes in just about a half an hour. One name we're watching today is Netflix. Shares moving lower after Barclays cut its price target to 170 from 275, saying it's on track to report another weak quarter. Stock's down 70% since January. And for more on that call, you can head over to cnbc.com slash pro. Now to Courtney Reagan for a CNBC News update. Court. Thank you very much, John. Good afternoon. Here is your CNBC News update for this hour. United Airlines COO saying the airline could remain challenged beyond the summer after shortage of air traffic controllers caused 75 percent of recent cancellations. He noted that New York and Florida were the states with the worst problems. Lawyers for Republican Senator Lindsey Graham said they will challenge a subpoena demanding that he testify before a special grand jury in Florida investigating possible election interference by former President Donald Trump and others. In a statement, Graham's attorney said the subpoena is, quote, all politics. President Biden and Vice President Harris spoke with the wife of Brittany Griner, the WNBA star detained in Russia. Biden assured her that he is doing everything he can to bring Brittany home and read his letter that Brittany will be receiving in the mail. Her trial continues tomorrow. And tonight on the news, new information on the Highland Park shooter after he confesses to the shooting. His dad allegedly sponsored him to buy the weapons used. Shepard Smith discusses parents and guns and the connection with being held accountable. John, back over to you. Courtney, thank you. Still ahead, can or can't the Fed engineer a soft landing? One of my next guests says doesn't really matter. He sees a significant rebound for the markets in the second half. Either way, he makes his case. Next. Welcome back. We're now about 25 minutes away from the release of the June Fed minutes. But as signs emerge that rate hikes are cooling inflation, think falling energy prices and slowing spending, will the Fed maintain the same level of hawkishness? Let's bring in Barry Knapp, uh, managing partner at Ironsize Macroeconomics, and Stephen Rusciuto, uh, chief U.S. economist at Mizuho Securities. Uh, Barry, you say the market has fully discounted your worst case outcome. How can that be when earnings expectations are still so high? Well, I think you'd have to consider uh, what kind of a recession we would have were we to fall into, not just the technical definition, but one that the NBER described as a, as a recession. And you have to go back some time to really look at what happens during inflationary recessions where the Fed tightens policy enough to uh, cause us to go into recession and compare it to the last three prior to the pandemic, which were credit cycles. And those were fueled by bank credit. We had the commercial real estate collapse in the late 80s, leading to the savings and loan industry collapsing. That was a credit cycle. Earnings dropped some 28%. We then had the tech bubble burst. That took technology earnings down massively and brought S&P earnings down 31%. Again, a portion of the build out of the internet was financed through the banking system. So it hit bank uh, profitability as well, roughly hmm. in 2002 when WorldCom and Global Crossing went under. And then, of course, we know what happened during the 
global financial crisis. But if you compare that to 1969-70, even the deep 73 to 75 recessions, 81 to 82, or more appropriately, the 80 recession, you tended to have real growth drop, but nominal growth continued to rise. And even in those long 16-month 73 to 75 and 81 to 82 recessions, you had fairly shallow earnings declines of something just greater than 10%. Okay. What's more probable is we had something like 1980, where we had a six-month recession and earnings only went down four. All right. All right. But, but, now, Stephen, I can imagine a scenario where inflation remains stubbornly high, even though growth slows and the Fed's got to keep hiking. Do you think that is priced in? Uh, No. Well, yes and no. I I don't believe it's priced into the market, nor do I believe the actual economic pain that's going to be felt is priced into the market today. My view of the situation is very simple. The Fed's not going to reverse policy course, as a lot of people anticipate. I believe when the Fed inflects, it's not a pivot. It's simply simply an inflection. And the pace of rate hikes slows, i.e., instead of getting to 4%, as James Bullard would like us to get in a very, very quick near future, You know, it could take us a year plus, year and a half to get there as the Fed goes back to a series of 25 basis point rate hikes, perhaps staggered out one per quarter as we go into 2023. And that's a different scenario than we've seen in all here, because I don't believe this is going to be a recession. I don't believe there's pent up demand. I don't think there's going to be a strong rebound from this slowdown that occurs. I think the economy is going to return back to a very shallow, you know, sub two and quarter percent growth trajectory uh, once we're done with this deceleration environment that we're dealing with today. And when is that, Stephen? When do you think we're done with it? Uh, it's going to take us a good five quarters uh, to get through it. You can argue whether we're already into it for one or two quarters or not. I, I think we're not going to be out of this malaise until we get to the first quarter of next year. And clearly, that's not priced into the equity market at this juncture, from at least my analysis. Okay, so Barry, you don't think that we're necessarily going to get called as being in a recession um, anytime soon. So is there anything in particular that you're going to be watching for in these Fed minutes to either ratify or challenge that? No, not really. I, I think that I think the big question for the Fed minute, minutes are going to be uh, how much did the decision hinge upon inflation expectations relative to the actual inflation data, which clearly has peaked. I think they've got a little egg in their face with respect to having overreacted to the preliminary estimate for Michigan's five-year inflation survey, some 500 respondents. It went to 3-3, and then when they got the rest of the data, it was only 3-1. It looks like a little bit of an overreaction, but clearly inflation has peaked on the good sides. Uh, We're going to get another round of housing data for the month of June by the next FOMC meeting. That's the most now, that's the cutting edge of Fed policy, right? That's really where it will uh, intersect with the real economy. If that looks soft again, they're going to start to think, okay, we've slowed it. And I agree with Steve's assessment that the pace of of tightening will slow. And that's part mm-hmm. of my broader thesis here is we are past the maximum point of pain when that, uh, in terms of uh, tighter, tighter policy. Uh-huh. When that happened in 94 in November, that kicked off a very significant equity market rally. We got the 75. I hear and you. I mean, but when you say in, inflation has peaked, I get flashbacks to March, April, uh, May. And, and that's uh, it's one thing to be past the, multi, the, the maximum point of, of pain, Stephen. It's another thing for the pain to actually ease. 
I mean, maybe inflation has peaked, but how long is it going to ride around uh, at this really high level? And what are, what are the impacts if it does? Yeah, longer than people think. And that's why there is going to be no reversal in monetary policy this time through and why the Fed, even though they will slow the pace of rate hikes, will have to continue it throughout the entire expansionary period. Uh, in addition to that, I think when you're looking at today's minutes, you want to look for the degree of discord there was over the 75 basis point move. Mm. Now, we do know we had one dissension. Uh, from the 75 basis point move. And remember, it came just a short period of time after the chairman had taken 75 basis points off the table, and then they leaked it through the back door that they were going to go 75 basis points. So the question is, how broad-based was that push for 75 basis points versus how much pushback did they actually get against it? And did they decide to go with it from a voting standpoint, but there was a lot more heated debate than we think? That's going to be critical. I bet we come out of this and there wasn't that much of a heated debate, and therefore it keeps alive the whole concept that the Fed could go 75 basis points and will actually keep on going more quickly than the market currently anticipates. We had a big rally at the front end of the curve, and I think that rally is probably overdue at this juncture. Yeah, well, yeah, the Fed's probably more in sync than the Supreme Court. We, we can probably bet on that at least. Barry Knapp, Stephen Rusciuto, thank you. Up next, ESG investing has both outspoken supporters and critics. But for the investors who make it a top priority, check out this chart. This company has perfect racial pay equity, at least according to a new study. The name and why a majority of America's top employers are staying mum on their internals is next. Welcome back. Apple is the chart we showed you in the tease. Here it is again. It's just one of the few companies that has achieved hmm, racial pay equity, at least according to Just Capital's new study. Leslie Picker joins me now with more on the findings and the questions the data raises. Leslie. Hey, hey, John. Yeah, I think the questions are the key point here because America's 100 largest employers are increasingly disclosing more about their racial pay equity progress. The trouble is only companies with a near or perfect score are the ones sharing information. According to that new study that you cited by Just Capital, 22 of those 100 companies disclosed their white to non-white pay ratio. They include GE, Bank of America, Apple, as you mentioned, Starbucks, Verizon, and Nordstrom. However, 43% of companies disclose that they're actually doing racial pay equity analyses, meaning roughly half of them are choosing not to disclose the results. So, this may be a case of reporting bias, says Ashley Mashand Orm, the director of corporate equity at Just Capital. The companies that we're seeing actually release the, the actual data, pay ratio data, uh, tend to be close to equity or have already reached equity. And that's challenging because that means that companies that aren't disclosing that information potentially just don't feel like they've reached that point where they can tell a good story and they see too much risk in releasing this data. She notes that there has been an overall jump in the amount of disclosure related to racial pay equity over the last few years, driven by shareholders and the public alike. John? Leslie, here's the thing. It seems to me that if what's being measured is white to non-white, then if you're a tech company with a lot of highly educated right. Asian, Asian-American employees, and then a lot of really low-paid black and brown employees, mm -hmm. you could look like you've got racial pay equity on the top line, when the truth beneath the surface might be something really different. Am I misunderstanding that? 
Nope, you are spot on, John. And that is a key point. Some companies are taking it a step further and disaggregating the data, looking much more acutely at various racial compositions as they look at the racial parity. Um, because you're right, oftentimes the data can be skewed by certain demographics, in which case the overall picture may look nice and, and neat and at parity. Whereas if you actually dig underneath the surface, there's much wider of a gap there. We like to dig underneath the surface. Uh, reminds me of schools <laughs> data and, and test scores as well. Complicated stuff. Mm -hmm. Leslie Picker, thank yep. you. Coming up, mortgage rates nearly double where they were last year, but Wells Fargo is getting bullish on one of the lenders despite weakening demand. The analyst behind that contrarian call is next. The Exchange will be right back. Total mortgage demand falling more than 5% last week, driven lower by a steep drop in refis. Despite this choppy housing market, Wells Fargo seeing a glimmer of hope in one of the mortgage lenders. Wells upgrading rocket companies to overweight, hiking its price target to 10 bucks, boosting the stock by about 5% today, but shares are still down about 40% this year. Joining me now, the analyst behind the upgrade, Don Fandetti, uh, equity research analyst for consumer finance at Wells. Don, why? Why this one in particular? Yeah, good afternoon. So, um, look, you know, we've been pretty cautious on Rocket. It's a very tough time in the mortgage market. Um, we think, you know, as you mentioned, the stock's down 40% this year. Uh, we actually think Rocket's going to be a major beneficiary of the market dislocation. We think they can take market share. Uh, we also expect capacity to come out of the industry as uh, mortgage originators sort of pare back uh, capacity on the lower volumes. And that's going to be good for gain on sale margins. And the other element is investor sentiment can't get much worse for the mortgage industry. Uh, investors are very bearish on this stock. And as we all know, you can't make money buying stocks that everyone loves. Uh, so that was kind of the <laughs> genesis behind our upgrade. Now, affordability, still horrible, but inventory starting to creep up. Um, you mentioned that Rocket has been a pioneer in digitizing the market. How does that give them an advantage in a market that's still unaffordable and where, um, I don't know, interest rates don't necessarily beckon to people uh, come ahead and, and buy something expensive right now? Yeah, look, it's a tough market. I think it's going to be a tough market for equities in general. Uh, you know, you have the Fed essentially... Uh, taking all the excess liquidity out of the system, asset values are going to go down. I do think the consumer is in pretty good shape, or at least coming into this uh, in a good position. Our base case is zero. I mean, zero GDP growth. So whether that's a recession or modest GDP growth, uh, it's hard to say. Um, but I would say, you know, we're looking for companies that are going to be winners over the long haul. And we think Rocket can be a consolidator. Uh, they're the most efficient company in the oh. space. And so we think that even though the market's brutal right now for originators, uh, we wanted to take the contrarian bet and look forward six to 12 months and say, who's going to come out of this stronger? Who can take market share? Uh, and we think that's rocket. And that's, uh, you know, the main reason why we think uh, we're bullish on the stock. But certainly You're we've gotten a lot of pushback from investors uh, just given that it's going against the grain here. Yeah, you, you, your coverage universe is, is nice and broad uh, in finance. So I wonder what you expect to happen with maybe the bulk of consumers as interest rates rise. Do uh, people kind of shy away from taking on more credit card debt 
and actually do more refis for the stuff that they actually have to buy because the interest rates, while higher, are still lower than they would be uh, on that other type of credit? Who, who benefits in this environment? Sure. Well, uh, Rocket's been benefiting from a lot of cash out refi activity uh, as home values have appreciated. We think some of that will cool off uh, and investors will move more towards home equity. I think Rocket will you know, dabble in that as well. But you know, we alluded to this earlier about the consumer. You're sort of at a tricky spot because balance sheets are very good. Debt to service, uh, debt uh, to uh, income to debt ratios are very strong right now. But look, there's going to be some impact, right? You have the Fed raising rates. We cover a lot of the card issuers and you're seeing some change in behavior on the consumer. And so some of the things we're watching, your stock portfolios are down 30% on the tech side. We think that could go lower. Uh, housing prices, our view is that there's no home price appreciation at this point. Um, and I think we're watching to see if that really rolls over and that could make us more cautious on the consumer. But right now, I think it's a little premature to, to get too bearish uh, on the consumer. Okay. Uh, that's kind of nice to hear. Don Fandetti with Wells Fargo. Thank you. Thank you. Coming up, your Amazon Prime subscription just got perhaps a little tastier thanks to the tech giant's latest partnership. Those details are next. Welcome back. Amazon adding JustEatTakeaway.com subsidiary Grubhub to its prime perks, sending shares of other food delivery names like DoorDash and Uber lower. Deidre Bosa joins me now with the details of the partnership. D, Amazon's got an option to take a 2% stake, but won't necessarily, right? Right, and that could actually increase to 15%, depending on how the deal goes. But essentially, what Grubhub gets in return is access to those 100 million plus prime households. Um, Amazon is going to be able to offer Grubhub Plus, that's its subscription service, for free for a year. And then the hopes is that some of those customers are going to stay online. And John, as we talked about this earlier in Tech Check, even if that's a small conversion rate of about 1%, these are some of the most valuable customers with subscription models. So that is the hope here. We'll have to see if it works. I mean, that Amazon Prime wheel is very valuable, very powerful, um, but Grubhub is sort of the third player in this field. Yeah, and there's not a ton of discovery in Prime, I don't think. Like, I don't go looking through some Prime basket to see uh, what benefits I can get. I, I kind of know I get some free delivery and I get some content. Uh, I, I wonder how they'll surface this. That's not necessarily clear. And there's probably a bunch of you know, people loyal to other services who won't necessarily care that Grubhub is now in the basket. Yeah, or maybe they already have a DashPass subscription, right? They don't necessarily want or need a Grubhub subscription. There's also the question of what kind of restaurants is it going to tap into? But the timing of this, John, is very interesting because Amazon has been in this business before unsuccessfully. It had, Amazon's rest it had Amazon restaurants as well as Prime Pantry. It closed those operations um, because they weren't gaining much traction. So this is a chance perhaps for Amazon to dip its toe back in, see how much the industry has changed. And we know very well that it has changed a lot over the past couple of years. DoorDash and Uber, the major players in this space, they're getting into delivery beyond restaurants, cosmetics, right. uh, electronics, convenience. So maybe Amazon to keep an eye on potential competition. Interesting indeed. Dee, thank you. And DoorDash, just to mention, down about seven and a half percent. And uh, as we head into the watch, the Fed minutes information, the uh, major average is just about flat. We'll see where we go from here. That does it for the exchange. Power Lunch starts now.
You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. With the Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card, you can earn unlimited 2% cash rewards on purchases you want and purchases you need. That means you earn 2% cash rewards on what you want, like season tickets to watch your favorite team, and 2% cash rewards on what you need, like paying for parking. That's the beauty of the Active Cash Credit Card. It's ready when you are with unlimited 2% cash rewards. The Wells Fargo Active Cash Credit Card. That's real life ready. Terms apply. Learn more at wellsfargo.com slash active cash.